Hold on to your hats. The countdown to the biggest wellness event of the year is on. Join our side August 15 and 16 in Melbourne for not one but two days of Powerhouse Wellness featuring 11 of Australia's most inspiring, entertaining, educating, fermentating speakers. Damo, what is fermentating? MP, I'll tell you at the summit. Your favourite wellness couch speakers are joined by special guest Nat Kringudis on all things hormones and female health. Join the Up For A Chat girls, the wellness guys, the natural nutritionist Steph Lowe, Kale Brock, Quirky Cookings, Joe Witt, Marcus Pierce, and the rest of your favourite wellness couch podcasters. Regular and VIP tickets are still available, but hurry before this summit is sold out. For tickets, go to www.thewellnesssummit.com. The Wellness Summit is proudly brought to you by Well & You. Be someone that makes you happy. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to The Wellness Guys Show with wellness experts, Dr. Lawrence Tam, Dr. Damien Kristoff, and Dr. Brett Hill. Welcome to The Wellness Guys. I'm Lawrence Tam. I'm Damien Kristoff. And I'm Brett Hill. And this is The Wellness Guys Show, a weekly show dedicated to bringing wellness into your lives. And today we have a very, very special guest all the way from Canada, not too far from where I'm from. Uh, we have Barbara Aerosmith-Young. It's a Canadian educator, author, and lecturer. She's a founder of the Aerosmith program, which formed the basis of Aerosmith School teaching method. And in 2002, she published the book, The Woman Who Changed Her Brain, which combines an autobiographical account of her severe learning difficulties and the methods she developed to overcome them with case studies of learning disabled children who she says overcame similar problems by using her method. Welcome to the Wellness Guy Show. My pleasure. My well, it's, pleasure. It's great to have a fellow Torontonian uh, on the show. And uh, I want to ask you first, how did you get involved? Let's tell us a little bit, talk about a little bit of your background. How did you get started in this type of work? Well, I, I got started um, because of my own very severe uh, learning disabilities. Uh, I was born way back in the 1950s, um, and at, at that point, the belief was that, that our brain was sick. So in grade one, I was identified as um, having actually a mental block because the term learning disability didn't even exist at that point. And so in grade one, I was told that I would never learn like other children and basically was given a life sentence, um, just told that I had to learn to accept my difficulties. I struggled with reading, with writing, numeracy, comprehension, and I, I had to believe somehow that, that there had to be a better way. I mean, education was an incredible struggle. I really hated school. Um, you know, it, it, you know, just walking across the street, going into that, you know, grade one class, it struck terror in my heart because I could see everybody else being able to learn and do things um, that with the best will in the world, I couldn't do. I got the strap in grade one because my teacher thought I was being, you know, difficult and stubborn and I wasn't. I just couldn't learn the way other other people did. So that started me on on my my journey and my mission. And I was very blessed to have a, a mother that was passionate about education and a father who was an inventor. Um, and his belief was if you have a problem and there's no solution out there in the world, it's your responsibility to go out and find a solution. He said, don't be limited by conventional wisdom. If the world says you can't do it, find a way to do it. So I kind of feel like at a very early age, I was set on you know the hunt for the Holy Grail. And for me, it was a solution um, to overcoming my learning difficulties. And that came through this concept of neuroplasticity, which we now know our brain isn't fixed and it can change. So it came from a very personal place. Um, and, and once I saw the results, I wanted to take this work out in the world and help 
other individuals that were struggling with learning. And now my program is in, I think, 75 schools, um, you know, in Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand. We're just going into South Korea, Malaysia, and uh, Thailand, and the United United Arab Emirates this year. So um came out of my personal journey. That's amazing. That's a, that's a true pioneering story. That's amazing. Well done, Barbara. Barbara, um, the used word in there called neuroplasticity, and when we interviewed um, Howard, we interviewed mm-hmm. Howard even a few months ago, and that was a great interview, actually. It was, it was terrific. It opened up a lot of people's minds um, to the concept of neuroplasticity, but it's still a bit of a foreign um, word in that the other night I was giving a presentation, and I dropped the word neuroplasticity in my conversation, and someone in the audience yelled out, <clears throat> bullshit. And uh, and I was quite surprised, you know. And uh, and I said, oh, I'm sorry, sir, did you actually just say that? And he said, yes, what a load of rubbish. And I said, well, there's so much research going on around neuroplasticity that it's it, you can't ignore it. This is actually really what's happening. He sat back, folded his arms, crossed his legs, and we got on with the presentation. But just for our listeners who still don't understand yet what neuroplasticity is, could you um, explain exactly what it is and does it really take place? Um, yes, I mean, there, there still are people. It's, it's to me kind of surprising that, that are stuck in what I call the pre-neuroplastic paradigm, which was that old belief that the brain you're born with is the brain that you die with, that basically it's fixed. And we know that's not the case. I mean, simply put, neuroplasticity just means that, you know, our brain is is capable of changing um, at a physiological and a functional level over the course of our lifetime. We know that we can grow um, new neurons, which is incredibly exciting. We know that we can grow, grow the, the dendrites, which are the branches on the neurons, which allow for more effective neurotransmission. We know that we can increase neurotransmitters. Um, we know that we can increase um, glia cells. I mean, we can change the brain physiologically as a result of um, stimulation to enhance its functioning. And to me, it's it's an incredibly promising concept. I mean, they're, they're using it, um, you know, for mental health issues, for learning issues, um, anxiety issues. I mean, it, it's, it's really promising and gives tremendous hope that sort of problems that at one point we thought were intractable and incurable, we now know if we can harness the brain's ability to change, we can actually address a number of, of different kinds of difficulties. And that's, you know, what I did with, with um, I had three very, very different cognitive um, deficits that I addressed when I started to create this work. So, Barbara, how do we get that across to people, I guess, on a more personal level? Because as Damien said, there's some people there who have trouble understanding this from, a, I guess, a global level, that neuroplasticity actually exists or that the research is there. But then I find that even people who then understand that neuroplasticity does exist and it can happen, but they still often find it hard understanding how that can apply to them. And so often, you know, whether they have learning difficulties, whether it's mental health stuff, whatever it happens to be, they find it hard for them to then turn around and say, well, actually, this is possible to change. They're often still stuck in that paradigm of, well, I've got this and it can't be changed, so I just have to live with it, mm-hmm. as opposed to maybe there's some stuff I can do that might help that to change. You know, how do you get that on a personal level to get people to understand that and to want to make change? I think it's it's through building awareness and education. I mean, the the concept of neuroplasticity comes sort of out of science and neuroscience, and it comes out of laboratories. I mean, the first research that, that I read to lead me to believe there was a possibility was actually with rats. It wasn't even with humans, and looking at, at physiological change in rats' brains. Um, 
and I made that leap to believe if rats' brains could change, surely humans had at least much as much capacity as, as a rat did to, to change our brain. But I think it, it's going to take time. Um, it, it really is a paradigm shift, and if that, that concept of scientific revolutions is it, it takes time for the knowledge to kind of filter down from a scientific level to a practical level. And that, I think, is really what's happening and has been happening sort of over the last, I would say, last decade. Uh, certainly, um, where we're seeing more and more um, programs coming out, you know, dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder, um, again, learning, dealing with, with learning difficulties, um, obsessive-compulsive disorders that are based on the principles of neuroplasticity and the brain's capacity to change. So I, I really think it's, it's going to happen, but it's, um, it's, it's education and, and building awareness, and that's certainly one of the things I'm passionate about when I go out and talk. Um, you know, one of the, the talks I give is on, you know, harnessing neuroplasticity and looking at how can we increase the positive factors in our life um, in just in general and how do we reduce the negative factors. Because what we know about neuroplasticity is it's really a neutral concept. Um, it can go in a positive direction to enhance function, but it can also go in a negative direction to um, detract from function. I mean, we know things like chronic stress, prolonged anxiety, chronic pain, sleep deprivation, all can lead to negative changes in the brain. Um, so we really want to reduce those factors in our life. So something as simple as meditation um, or stress reduction is a positive thing that people can do to increase neuroplasticity. Um, things like getting enough sleep. I mean, we know the research on sleep deprivation, um, it, it has negative impact on, on the brain. Um, exercise. I mean, there's, there's research looking at brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is critical for neuroplasticity, is enhanced in, you know, with exercise. And again, you don't have to become a marathon runner. Just 20 minutes a day of good aerobic exercise leads to good brain health. So I think it's, as people start to talk about this, and certainly I think scientists have a responsibility to take this knowledge and help people understand how they can apply it in their lives in, in practical ways. Well, I love this. Uh, I think the boys are loving this too. For one, because they have hope for me for being able to change uh, in terms of my <laughs> learning, so which is good. Uh, number, number, number two, though, I think my question on this is that I think it's great that the science has been able to show for many years now that that the brain can change, and but that's one aspect. And but is there there's the is there the desire to change? You know, we you know, if I don't know if you read the book, the mindset by Carol Dweck's work, and they talk about mm -hmm, the fixed yeah. mindset, which is the versus the growth mindset. And, you know, what that, you know, when Damien mentioned about that guy, like he obviously in a, is in stuck in a fixed mindset, you know. So mm -hmm. there's the research to say that your brain can change, which is obviously fantastic, which is hope. However, what's the, how do we motivate or change people to want to change? That's a really, really good question. And sadly, I, I don't know that I, I have an answer. I think, again, it's, it's building awareness, showing the possibility. Like, I, I think if, if, you know, a number of years ago, people didn't believe the brain was capable of change. So it wasn't even like if we don't have the awareness or a template that something's possible, nobody's out there hunting for it. Now it's kind of trickling down to say this is possible, which I think 
people are starting to become aware of. But then again, how do we how do we do something with this information? So I, I think it's it's just going to happen over time with with exposure, um, and as people start to you know implement some of these things in their life. I mean, like uh, what we know is this concept of effortful processing, um, which is critical to drive neuro positive neuroplastic change. So let's say you want to take an activity, um, I don't know, I, like learning how to dance or learning chess. What you want to do is, or crossword puzzles, is start the level of difficulty of the task. I mean, if you start it, it's really, really easy. And I mean, buy those really simple crossword books. They're, they're going to um, create no strain in terms of your, your cognitive function, your capacity. So your brain's going to go on cruise control and it's not going to drive any positive change. If you pick, you know, the most complex crossword puzzles that are out of your reach, again, it's like your brain is going to be spinning gears because it can engage. So, you know, one piece of advice I'd have for anybody is, is look at the activity you want to do and start it almost like exercise. You start just slightly above your current level of functioning. So there's a bit of a strain, but it's attainable. And by then engaging with the activity at that level, which drives effort for processing, which drives neuroplastic change, um, then your function will step up to meet that. When it, it meets that and kind of goes on cruise control, then step up the level of difficulty Mm. Again, um, I mean, people can put that into anything they do, and it it will drive neuroplastic change in a positive way. I, I love that. I love that concept, and and I think I'm going to ask a per, sort of somewhat from a personal perspective. Do you think it's a societal thing though, like the, where you, you know we're taught in society that you basically go to school from you know kindergarten, year one, all through elementary school, and then high school, and if you choose to go to university, you go to university, but then it's like go get a job. That's the society mm-hmm. we've been kind of living in. And so therefore, after I almost feel like the society almost has this feeling that once you're out of school, per se, quote unquote, school or university, like the learning kind of stops because you're going to go get a job. Is it that type of social pressure or that idea that is sort of outdated that sort of causes people not to want to really learn beyond that? Um, I mean, I think, sadly, I think a lot of education <laughs> makes mm. people not want to learn. Um, I mean, cause if you think about the, I mean, and, and there are lots of good educators out there. There really, really are. But in a lot of ways, the job of education is, is imagining that you've kind of got this, this black box, which is, you know, the human being in the brain, and you're trying to pour content into it, like, you know, so that that individual um, can learn. But sort of the premise, really, if we look at a lot of education, the premise is that the learner is fixed. Basically, most of education isn't even directed towards changing the learner or the capacity of the learner. So most of education is coming out of that pre-neuroplastic paradigm, saying the learner's fixed, they've got to learn content. I mean, and yes, maybe it would be nice if they learned strategies and kind of ways to learn, but a lot of it is is learning content. I think where we need to move is what I call capacity-based learning, which is the premise is the learner can be modified. We can actually change the cognitive processing and functioning of the learner. Um, so then the learner can go out and learn like in the rest of their life. So I, I think it's not so much just when they get out of school. I think that the challenge is um, the way we approach education. So it, it, it's, it's not um, in a lot of ways stretching the individual 
to change their capacity to then go out and, and tackle everything that comes their way in life. Barbara, this is so good. This is so good. I, I can feel a double episode coming on. I don't know if we're going to be able to, but I can feel it happening. Um, now, Barbara, uh, just wondering, how long does it take before you can actually see this change? And is it measurable? You know, is is it something that we can measure in terms of the change? You know, is it objective or is it a subjective kind of uh, measurement tool? And then, um, is it ever too late to begin this kind of process? Um, okay, those are all good questions. The first one, I mean, what we see and what I saw. It's about the three-month mark of the the cognitive program and cognitive um, stimulation. I started to see change, Um, and I started to be able to listen to things and understand them. I used to talk about how I lived in what I called lag time. I was hours behind everybody else in processing information, and I had a phenomenal auditory memory, so I would memorize everything that I heard and then like a little tape recorder, play it over and over again, but I wouldn't understand it. After about the three-month mark, I could listen to a conversation, understand it in real time, actually make a comment to the person you know that was talking that was appropriate to the conversation, and I could be part of human dialogue, which I never could before. So really very profound change that, that was not subjective. Um, and what we see across the board is about that three-month mark. We're doing imaging research with students in my program at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver in Canada. And I asked the researcher to image the students, I mean, prior to the program, and I said, I want to see what's happening in the brain at the three-month mark, because that's when parents start to see change, students start to see change, teachers start to see change. And sure enough, at three months, we were seeing um, myelin change, so connectivity in the brain. We were seeing gray matter change. We were seeing one of the exercises that, that I've developed, 15 different cortical regions processing more efficiently at the three-month mark. We were seeing the prefrontal cortex start to activate, which is the part of the brain that does thinking, problem-solving, planning, strategizing, really critical um, function. So not only are there changes experientially in the person's life, they were seeing now changes in the brain, and we've done a number of outcome studies using standardized measures like reading scores, math scores, um, cognitive store scores, things like, um, you know, reading fluency, um, visual matching, um, short-term memory, working memory, processing speed, all of those on standardized tests showing significant change um, of students going through this program. If you know anybody's interested on you know the school's website, there's a section entitled Research, and it summarizes a lot of the studies that have been done. But to me, what's most significant are these individuals that can now engage in the world in a totally different way than they could before. Um, and you know what still breaks my heart is these individuals that are out there not accessing this kind of work that are really suffering. I mean, I think one of the things this work fundamentally does is it alleviates human suffering. I spoke to um, a parent uh, the other day from West Virginia in the United States, and she told me her daughter earlier this year, and this girl is seven, came home and asked her mother if she could have the shot that animals at the animal shelter are given to put them to sleep because school was so painful. I mean, no child should feel that way. She went into the, the program and by January, for the first time ever, was reading books and, and comprehending and is, is this happy little being now. Um, 
So, I mean, I'm never going to rest until this work is broadly accessible so children don't have to feel that way. So, Barbara, is it ever, like, too late? Like, is there ever a case where there's been, you know, damage done within the brain or if there are just, you know, someone who's just so stuck that they can't still make improvements? Or is it the case that no matter what's going on because of the plasticity of the brain, because of the amazing changes that can happen, that regardless of what's going on, you can at least improve a little bit? I believe that you can at least improve a little bit. I mean, what the research is saying is there's neuroplasticity across the lifespan. I've worked with students as young as six and as old as 81, and I've seen plasticity right across that lifespan. What we do know is there's variability in plasticity, which there is in in everything. I mean, so some people have probably more ability for the brain to change than others, but I believe we all have the capacity um, for change. I mean, certainly I'm very cautious if somebody has a neurodegenerative condition like Alzheimer's, um, dementia, you know, I'm not, my work is not going to reverse that. I mean, there's research suggesting possibly, you know, early cognitive stimulation might slow down that process, but it's not going to reverse it. But individuals that just, you know, that are struggling with learning difficulties, um, you know, I, I haven't seen an individual that, that hasn't benefited from this kind of work. Um, this is this might be a question you can or cannot answer. We're probably just asking for your opinion. Like the school that we, as we mentioned before in the earlier question, that the schools are kind of designed for a sort of an industrial age where we are kind of putting mm. people, uh, kids to grow up, to learn, to basically, you know, move into factories and, and learn. But obviously the mm. world has changed. We are, um, mm-hmm. you know, moving to a, an age where... Um, you know, there's a lot more opportunities for entrepreneurs or even just kids to be able to learn how to do things. Where do you think the directions mm-hmm. of the school should um, go towards in terms of the, the learning? Because let's face the fact mm-hmm. nowadays, you know, if we wanted to learn about information, you just kind of go online, go on Wikipedia, you can find out yes. anything you want to learn. So it's not about rope learning anymore, rote learning anymore. It's more about really about how to think. Where, should, where do you yes. think the direction of the school should be going towards? I, I personally think that every child starting in grade one, um, part of their day should be devoted to, you know, cognitive stimulation, whether my program, comparable programs, and part of the day should be um, on learning how to learn and then learning content. Mm-hmm. Because I think, oh, what do we learn with? We we learn with our brain. And if, if we can um, develop good sort of habits of general stimulation and targeted stimulation very, very early, I think that's going to change the face of education. There's a, a school in um, South Carolina that put their grade two class on two of my cognitive exercises, and this is the second year they've done that, and they, they've seen remarkable results. Uh, there is a possibility, I think, in uh, a school in Sydney that we're looking at doing that in a grade one class. There's a school in Florida that we're looking at doing that. Um, I mean, we learn with our brain if we can stimulate that brain at a very early age, I believe it's going to change the whole trajectory of the individual's learning. And also what that would do, those students that say by grade three might get identified as having a learning difficulty, never will, because by grade three, it will be addressed. Um, Students that have uneven profiles, which I see as adults, um, that would get addressed. And I believe, you know, any child can benefit from good cognitive stimulation. So we would 
turn out a, a, a group of individuals that have really powerful capacity to learn and to engage with the world and learn whatever they choose to learn. How do, how do we do that, Barbara? Like how do like parents, like listening, parent, parents that are listening or even teachers that are listening, how do we create, like, can you give us an example of, you know, how to find that creativity or sort of um, st- stimulate that brain at the early age? Um, Just a couple well, examples. I mean, like. I think, um, I'm not sure whether I've got examples. I mean, one thing I think parents can do is advocate. I mean, mm. what I've certainly learned over the years is that schools actually listen to parents. Um, and, you know, if, 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 if nobody's asking for something, then it's never going to be delivered, right? I think it's, it's parents having to go out and say, you know, we would like to look at, um, you know, aspects or programs that will actually enhance cognitive functioning, at, at least like start the dialogue and the conversation. So advocacy is one thing. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, as I said before, they're, they're good things that do general stimulation, um, exercise. Um, um, certainly, you know, there's a lot of research around music, like, you know, early, you know, exposure to, to music, learning music is, is very, very engaging with the brain and, and stimulating. Um, you know, so, I mean, those are a couple of suggestions, but to the kind of the work that I developed is it, very, very targeted. It's, it's not general stimulation because general stimulation would have done nothing for me. I needed, I had very specific parts of my brain that weren't working properly. I had to develop very targeted um, exercises to stimulate different functions. And then once I started working with people, they didn't all have the same difficulties as I did. So I would listen very deeply to what they described and go back into the neuroscience literature and create more programs and now have programs for 19 different cognitive functions from, um, you know, reading nonverbal cues, face blindness, uh, auditory memory, visual memory, um, quantification, numeracy, thinking, planning, problem solving. Um, so it's, it's, it's very targeted and very, very specific, but anything that, that again, that effortful processing, um, anything that really engages the brain in a positive way, I mean, meditation, um, those would all be really positive things that, you know, children could benefit, like a mindfulness practice introduced in school would be excellent. Barbara, this, this is so good. Just wondering, um, Obviously, the term neuroplasticity implies that it continues, the brain continues to change throughout its whole life and the whole span of its life, um, which you've experienced and you wrote about in your book and, um, and Norman Deutsch also wrote in his book as well. So I'm just wondering, like any other muscle in the body, um, if you don't use it, you lose it. Uh, um, the training that you do with, with kids um, and with adolescents, is, how, is it, does it last for a long time or is it something that's got to be repeated? Does it regress back to where it was? Or once you've built these bridges, um, is it something that you can build upon um, continuously? And do you think that what you're doing can increase intelligence in people who don't have um, disability? Um, yes to all of the above. Um, <laughs> I, I think, um, yes, I mean, I have, I've worked with individuals that come in and just want to enhance function and nobody would identify them as having a learning disability. I had a student that 
um, wanted, he dreamed of being an architect his whole life. And his mechanical reasoning was at the 50th percentile. Well, that's average. I mean, nobody would call that a deficit, but you're not going to get into architecture if your mechanical reasoning is the 50th percentile. So I created, created a program for him. I got him up to the 99th percentile and he's now been an architect probably for 20 years. Um, so, Absolutely. I mean, you can take the principle and take somebody from average to above average if, you know, they are motivated um, to do that. And then the other question, what I've tracked now is people, myself included, out of the program over 30 years, and there's no drop-off of function. I believe what happens is once that area is stimulated, it doesn't need to um, continue engaging with the exercise because it just works within the neural network you know, of the other areas, um, whereas before it was a drag on the system, now it's engaged. And I believe what happens is it's getting its own stimulation by being used on a daily basis um, throughout the individual's, you know, activities over the course of a day. Um, so it, it starts to get its own stimulation by um, being engaged in the neural network. Fantastic. Sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> um, <laughs> one, one last question um, before we head off here. Um, there's a big thing about entrepreneurs um, in CEOs and top companies. A lot of them have actually had learning, learning difficulties in the past, um, like dyslexia and everything. Why do you think that's the case? Um, I, I'm not so sure. I mean, I think it's we hear about those cases, but it would be to me it would be interesting to see you know what is the actual percentage um and is it just that because they're interesting cases that that we hear about them um i think also though it it may be the case that um it takes tremendous drive to cope with having a learning disability like it, really you're having to overcome incredible obstacles and stressors and probably that drive leads to, you know, entrepreneurial success. I mean, certainly it's, it's, it's a, a characteristic, but certainly, I mean, I see an awful lot of students um, every day around the world that will not have the possibility um, to become an entrepreneur, you know, unless their difficulties are addressed. So mm. I, I think it's probably a small, a really small percentage. And, and actually, I think sometimes... Um, there's a disservice done to individuals with learning difficulties where, you know, there's this concept is a gift. Well, I'm not so sure that it's a gift. Like, mm. I don't know if you ask any child with a learning disability, you know, you know, if, if you were given the opportunity to say, do you want this as a gift or not? I think the majority of them would say no. Um, it, it's like maybe what we do with it. I mean, for me, it drove me to create this work, but, you know, tremendous suffering. I mean, I, I tried to end my life at age 13, um, you know, and and do I have regrets? No, it led me to this work, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, I don't know that I would call it necessarily um, a gift to have, you know, that pain. And mm. I developed a compromised immune system. The research now is showing that people with um, learning disabilities often have physical ailments or have physical ailments at a higher level than individuals that don't. You think about all that cortisol that washes through your system, you know, the the, the stress hormones, they affect your immune system. Um, I, I just, 
you know, I, I don't see it as a gift, I guess. Yeah, well, well, you know, this has been a fascinating interview, and thank you so much for taking your time out of your day. I want to say thank you to Jody Basso, who actually introduced us to you and uh, to your work. This is just fantastic, and I'm sure a lot of people are getting a great value from this particular podcast. And how do I know you're coming down to Australia and New Zealand, and you're doing a whole, you know, I think an eight city tour or, or something like that, eight days at least. Um, so, could you tell us a little bit more what you're going to be talking about and who it's for? Well, I'm, I'm, uh, it's, it's for anybody interested in learning, <laughs> I think. Um, so educators, parents, um, just people that, that are curious and want to learn a bit more about neuroplasticity. So, um, I have a, a range of talks. I mean, most of them I talk a little bit about my, my own journey that led me to this work at the research that I came across that, that, um, allowed me, you know, to create the, the programs, um, a bit about neuroplasticity, um, some of the mental health factors that, that go along with having learning difficulties, and then the cognitive transformation, which to me is, is so exciting, like what, what the outcomes are. Um, and I talk about what I call cognitive glitches or cognitive mismatches, where, you know, the adults I work with um, have, you know, areas that impact their ability to engage in their professions um, that I think are, are quite intriguing. Sort of some of these things that we think of as accidents actually might be a cognitive mismatch where the demand of the task that the person's engaged in isn't compatible with their cognitive profile. So I would say anybody that's interested in learning, interested in the brain, um, interested in neuroplasticity, you know, come out and hear me speak. Oh, that's great. Well, um, Barbara will be in Australia and New Zealand, August and September 2015. All the, you know, in cities in Adelaide, Sydney, Melbourne, Wellington. Um, I think there's a whole bunch of Brisbane as well. So uh, definitely to make sure you go to thewellnesscouch.com to this particular episode. We'll put the actual link on how you can buy tickets onto the description of this particular podcast. And uh, Barbara, thank you so much for a fascinating interview and really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Guys, uh, make sure you go join us on Facebook. Uh, keep this conversation going. Go to Wellness Guys uh, and the Wellness Couch Facebook page. Like us there and comment below this particular episode and how, what you learned from it. More importantly, though, make sure you share this podcast with your friends and families and other strangers you think need a wellness update. Subscribe to us on iTunes, and that's how we're going to get discovered there. So please leave us a rating, uh, five star like Damien wants, and to also comment on iTunes and to help us discovered uh, to get discovered. But more importantly, like I said, go to wellnesscouch.com to find out more about where Barbara's going to be speaking and getting tickets there. Until next week, begin creating wellness since she lies lead by example and let's change the world's health together join us next week on the wellness couch show this has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com check us out on facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch subscribe to each show on itunes and check us out on twitter the wellness couch streaming wellness into your lives Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.